you. Scott, I just pray right now that you just open my heart and speak to me through your words. So there's an opportunity for you to pray here. Just stir deeply within my heart, O oh Lord, right at the very deepest issue that only even you know about and that I don't know, Lord. So we just bind rebuke all spirits of distraction, anything that would come against this service. We bind you and rebuke you in the name and authority of Jesus. And we bring this service, this time, our hearts under the authority of Jesus, under his rule, under his kingdom. So Holy Spirit, we're asking you to do what only you can do right here and right now, and that's bring transformation into our hearts and into our lives. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a very famous painting by Michelangelo called The Creation of Adam. And in this painting, what he did is he did something very interesting where he has God that is stretched out and just straining as hard as he possibly can towards Adam. If you notice, Adam's just kind of kicked back. You know, he just got his hand up on his, on his, his arm, on his knee there, and he's just, just kind of nonchalant, not really even trying to reach back towards God. It's just kind of no big deal. And God is stretching with everything he's got, but he gets just so close and then he leaves the rest to Adam. Adam's got to do the rest of the reaching. See, God is drawn near, but he's leaving us the opportunity for us to reach back. You know, we, we learned in James that if we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. So we talk about Christmas with, with God coming near. I mean, he is near to us. However, he doesn't come in and take over. He leaves room for us, our decision to break through all of the Christmas, worldly Christmas stuff to the true meaning of Christmas because so many people, when we look at the story of Jesus being born, the story of Jesus' life, it is surrounded by rejection. 
Even this, this birth is surrounded by rejection. And, and today, we have so many people that are still rejecting Christ, and they're rejecting not just Christ, but even Christmas. You know, people are getting offended by nativity scenes, you know, and getting them taken down out of courtyards. And we've seen that happen in the last several years because people are rejecting Christ. So the thing that I've got to ask myself this morning whenever I come in here into God's house to worship how am I doing with rejection? Because all of us have had to deal with rejection on one level or another. Maybe this past year for you, you have suffered through some severe rejection in your life. Maybe this Christmas, you know, in this year, this is the hardest Christmas that you've ever faced. So how do we deal with rejection? Well, I got some good news for you today. Rejection isn't the only thing that happens to bad people. Rejection happens when you're doing everything right and you're right where God wants you to be. So be encouraged this morning as we look at the story. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is our primary text. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. So this is the king. We talked about him last week. Very ungodly king. And he's making a decree because in this decree, God has moved in this ungodly man's heart to get things working. So Joseph and Mary will be back in Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus because it's been prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And as you know, Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth, which is over 90 miles away. And this is the point to where Mary is getting very, very pregnant, very, very uncomfortable and the 90-mile-plus-mile trip is going to be very uncomfortable for her. Now, why is it, let me ask you a question, dear friend, why is it that whenever we think when we are doing what God wants us to do that it will be comfortable or that it will be easy? Or that we will never suffer rejection from people? People in church, hey, listen, some of you are sitting here this morning or some of you are watching online you are serving or have been serving with your whole heart and the people that you are looking up to and respecting the most are the ones that rejected you and it burned you and it was a painful thing for you well if it happened to jesus why would we think we should be exempt here today so the first registration took place while Carus was governor of syria so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So as you know, Joseph was from the lineage of David. So Joseph's going to have to go back to Bethlehem. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family line of David, even though Joseph was Jesus's stepdad. But Mary also was from the line of David. So to be registered along with Mary, but according to Roman law, Mary didn't have to go. So this gives us a clue, a little hint of something that may have possibly been happening. Why would he take Mary when she's nine months pregnant, this would be so painful for her, away from her home and away from her family? Because we know that in the first century, with her, with them being engaged, and then she turns up pregnant, that, you know, if Joseph accepted her, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that his family accepted her. Can anybody relate this morning? <laughs> this may be that the in-laws, you know, because back in their time, Joseph would have went back to his father's house and built a bridal chamber, a place for them to live while, while, she was, while they were engaged. 
And then he would bring her to his father's house. You know that story, right? So it's a possibility. The Bible doesn't explicitly say this, so I'm just saying here's a possibility because we don't read anywhere of any of Joseph's family being there. We only read them in isolation. So very well could possibly be that there was rejection from their family. And that's why they are there alone. And that's why he took Mary with him to get her away from all of the small town junk that she was involved in. So she came along. She was engaged with him. And, you know, Luke's going to make sure, Dr. Luke's going to make sure we know that this virgin, and Matthew makes, makes sure that we understand, too, that all the way to the birth, she remained a virgin. But after that, they had other children. So don't, um, just another thing also, be careful when you call Mary the mother of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it refer to her as the mother of God. Okay, because when we say terminology like the mother of God, that means that we believe that she preceded God, and she did not precede God, okay? She was the mother of Jesus, but she was not the mother of God. You've got to make a distinction between the two, even though Jesus is God, but be careful about calling her the mother of God. The connotation that carries along with it is dangerous, okay? So here's what I see, and I want you to be encouraged by this this morning. The king was the one that made sure. It was, he, God moved in his heart to get them to Bethlehem. Look at this, Proverbs 21.1 said, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. So be encouraged by that today, my dear friend. No one can be in any kind of a power, political power over you that can ruin your life or can ruin God's plan. Be encouraged this morning because it doesn't matter where they are, God can guide their heart. So we need to be praying. That's why the Bible says we pray for our kings, the elected officials over us. Because ultimately, God is a king. Ultimately, he's the ruler. Ultimately, he's the one that's sovereign. Ultimately, he's the one that's going to have the end of the story all wrapped up in his hands. No man on earth, regardless if he's a king or a president or anything else, it's God and God alone. Luke chapter 2, verse, verse 6 here. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And then verse 7 is so loaded. This is really where I want us to dig in this morning. So she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly, three things right here, strips of cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So three things here I want us to dig into this morning that's very interesting. So now, the first thing is this is that when we talk about there not being any lodging there, here's what this says in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, a very obscure passage that in we read this in English, we miss something that's in Hebrew. It says, and you, and we, our, our translator translated this watchtower for the flock. And in Hebrew, it's migdal adir. So migdal adir, what that was is that was the... That was the section of Bethlehem that was the agricultural section of Bethlehem. So you have to understand something. Bethlehem is David's hometown. He is the one who founded Jerusalem. At the time that he founded Bethlehem, even to the time of the birth of Christ, it was actually the, the acreage of it, you know, the, the territory of it was larger than it is now. Now it's Bethlehem and Bethel. Now you, you may know, you guys that have studied the text before and Bible before, that Bethlehem, Bethel was about a mile away from Jerusalem. Well, in this time, Bethlehem, Migdal, Adir, that's what it was. It was about a mile away from Jerusalem. Here's what you understand. That whenever David, when he set up, his heart was to bring the tabernacle into Jerusalem. When he founded Jerusalem, it was a place where God's holy city, where that God's 
you know, presence would be, his manifest presence would be revealed through the tabernacle and then later through the temple. Now, what was important about this? Because in the tabernacle, that's where the sacrificial system was taking place. Once a year, on the high holy day, during the Passover, they would bring in this special spotless lamb, and this lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the entire nation. Now, here's the thing. So what David did is David dedicated Migdal Eder as the place where these lambs would be raised. So these shepherds, their job was to breed the sheep to where they would have these spotless lambs. And whenever they would get close to time for the Passover, the high priest, along with some of the other priests, would come out to Migdal Adair. And what they would do is they would look for the, the spotless lamb that these shepherds had prepared for them. In Migdal Adair, there are more of these towers than any other place in the world. These towers, these shepherds would watch the flock carefully to make sure that there wasn't any danger coming into them. And in these towers, every single one of them in the bottom, they had a place whenever they, they got ready for these special, the breeding that they were taking place for these special lambs, they would bring them in there and they'd have a special lodging there for this place, for this little lamb to be born. Now I'm not saying that's where Jesus was, but there are some Bible scholars that say they believe that Jesus was born in Migdaladur, and that he was born in one of these places here. Don't know. Doesn't really matter. But here's what does matter. The text in Micah does mention Migdal Adir. And here is the interesting thing. Is that whenever the, the shepherds, whenever they would get that perfect lamb, they would put it in a manger. And what they would do is they would take strips of cloth. Listen to me, church. That came from the priest's robe and they would swaddle that little lamb in that cloth and put him in this manger and whenever they picked that special lamb they would take it and keep it swaddled because they didn't want it walking because they didn't want anything to happen to it because if something happened to it before they got it to the sacrifice then it would ruin everything so they would swaddle it in these strips of cloth take it out of the manger and take it in to be sacrificed for the sins of the nation So whenever we read the story, we read about Jesus, we see this. The angels come to the shepherds in Migdal Adir who know this whole story that we just talked about. They know about the sacrificial lamb being put in the manger, being wrapped with the, the swaddling cloth there. Here's what it says. And, and you will recognize him, the angel says, by this sign, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. What were they thinking when, they, when the angel said that? Oh, we never seen that before. We, never, we don't do that every year with this special lamb. So that would be the sign. So many Bible scholars believe that whenever the shepherds heard this, that they know where to go, that they went to the tower and they looked under the tower. I'm not saying that's what happened because I wasn't there and the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, but I say it's kind of on the interesting side. doesn't really matter if he was born in the city of Bethlehem. doesn't matter if he was in the inn and that was the manger was in there. doesn't really matter. What matters is, is that the symbolism from Micah about wrapping up with a swaddling cloth and putting in the manger being the sacrificial lamb, the lamb that sacrificed for the whole world for all time, that's what makes a difference. That's what matters in this story. So just one more thing right here. When Jesus was crucified, 
They took him down and they wrapped him in fine linen and they placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock. You see, because for a manger to be made out of wood in, in the first century Israel was a rare thing because wood was much more scarce than rock. They had limestone everywhere. Most of their mangers would be, knocked, would be hewn out of limestone like that one we saw there. So when he was born, wrapped in cloth, laid in the rock, and then whenever he died for the sins of the world, here he is once again, wrapped in fine linen and put back into a rock once more. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Look at the ministry of Jesus here. Jesus comes back to his hometown, and here's what happens. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. You may look at that and say, wait a second, I thought Jesus is God. You're right, he is. He was, always has been, always will be. So why on earth would Luke say, filled with the Holy Spirit's power? Because we that are in Christ, he is our example. We are striving to be more and more like Christ. So the, 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 the illustration for us is that if we want to do anything as far as ministry is concerned, have any influence for the kingdom of God, we have got to be filled with the Holy Spirit's power. It isn't about having a slick program. It isn't about having a slick person or anything like that. It always comes back to the power of the Holy Spirit. So listen, friend, if you've got that loved one that's out in the darkness, that loved one that's making a wreck of their life, and you're worried over them, and you're doing everything you can to help them, let me tell you something, the most important, the most valuable thing you can ever do for anybody is pray for them. Because God the Holy Spirit can do with them what no one on the face of the earth can do with them. So reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. <clears throat> he taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. You've probably heard this before. I want you to understand something. If you're ever doing ministry and everybody's praising you, be careful. That's usually not a good thing. I think this, this is just my opinion. Take it or leave it, whatever you want to do with this. I believe many times that whenever someone starts off in ministry that they are praised by everyone. And I believe that the devil is happy to see that happen. Because when you get praised by everyone, you go along so far and you think, hey, you know what, I'm pretty good. They're all kind of lucky to have me. And whenever you start kind of getting that prideful thought, then all of a sudden, here it comes out of nowhere. The, man, the rug gets pulled out from under you, and all of a sudden, everybody seems like turns against you. And that is enough to make anybody want to quit. And listen, the enemy doesn't want anything more from you than for you to quit. You realize that, right? It isn't just, it isn't just, the, this isn't just for people in ministry. This is for people that are in Christ. The enemy wants you to quit. So listen, if you've been thinking this past week about quitting on anything spiritual, withdrawing and isolating anything spiritual. Let me help you understand something. That does not come from God. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do and to be and to be isolated. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. <laughs> if they only knew what they were doing, handing him the Isaiah. He unrolled, because full of prophecy about the Messiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here he goes. Here's prophecy about the Messiah right here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. You have to understand something. This language right here, the oppressed will be set free, was very, very rich to them in first century Israel because they were under Roman oppression. And what they were looking for more than anything else is they were looking for the Messiah to come and free them from Roman oppression. They were looking for the Messiah, the king in the line of David, that would, be, that would have a kingdom like David. Now listen, this kingdom like David, they believed, would come in and would be a military, political kingdom that would free them from Roman oppression that they once again would become the powerhouse of the world, that everybody else would be bowing down to them like it was. See, whenever David was king, that's one of the only times that Israel was ever had totally subdued all of their enemies, and they were the world power. A little bit during Solomon also, but David founded all this. And the Messiah from all the prophecy would come from the line of David, would have a kingdom like David, but his, his kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, listen to me, church, would be an everlasting kingdom. So the man, we want this Messiah. So they were thinking, so we'll have this kingdom. We'll, no one else will ever come in and oppress us, overthrow us ever again. I said, you know, you know what's wrong with that thinking. But you have to listen, if you look at the prophecies from their perspective, it all made sense. Now, let me, let me just, let me tell you something here. Please hear me on this. We have got prophecies about the future. The book of Revelation is loaded with prophetic stuff. But be careful with that and saying that you know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Because here's the thing about prophecy. You really don't fully understand it until you get there. And when you get there, it's like, now it all makes sense. So when we look at it in the future and we say, well, this is what the beast is going to be like and the, the number of the beast and all that kind of stuff. And we say, exactly. Be careful with that because that's the same thing the religious leaders did. And whenever Jesus came, they crucified him because they, he didn't line up with their expectations and their interpretation of the scripture. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Let me ask you something. Verse 19, let me just ask you something. These people are living in Roman oppression. Had the time of the Lord's favor when Jesus showed up, had it come? You better believe it had. Because you know this. God's favor is not based on you getting a good parking spot when you go Christmas shopping. God's favor is based on your position in Christ. It isn't based on whether you have a happy life, whether you have a fun, a pain-free life. Matter of fact, God's favor we saw last week was on Mary. And we, even in this story, we see that she is having a painful life. Everything about this is painful for her. So don't ever think that God's favor means pain-free. From a biblical standpoint, many times it means just the opposite. It means a pain filled in this world. Oh, but see, here's what happens, folks. Listen, now, you know, I read this one time and it stuck with me. See, because whenever I live a pain-free life, it makes me think this is my home. And whenever I live a pain-filled life, it turns my heart towards my real home. So he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, he sat down, the eyes of the synagogue... All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Let's get ready for this sermon. Man, I've been hearing about this boy preach. I want to hear it. I got to see it for myself now. Here we go. Let's see what kind of a sermon is this going to be. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled. Here's a day of favor this very day. Now, you have to understand something. That look of intent all of a sudden went to what? 
Because he's saying the Messiah's here. He's saying that the, the day of the Messiah is here. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. And so they were all locking his preaching till this point. They were all very impressed with him until this point. And it says then, how can this be, they ask? Isn't this Joseph's son? You see, because they could not see past the familiar to the miraculous. He was, it was too familiar to them. Man, they saw them as a kid that grew up right there in their city. They knew his dad. And let me ask you something. So here it is. So let's answer this question. Isn't he Joseph's son? Let's answer that question. Not really. But even if he was Joseph's biological son, then here's what we should do. We should ask, does Joseph's lineage go back to Bethlehem, to David? And what's the answer to that? It amazes me. Listen, folks, listen. You read, read the Gospel of John, and it amazes me how many times the religious leaders all got up in arms and said, he's from Nazareth. We all know that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Just ask one question. Where were you born? You just solved that problem right there. But they made assumptions. They were quick. Oh, my goodness. How many times have you regretted when you've made, been quick to make assumptions on something and you totally misunderstood the whole situation? So they should have done a little bit of investigation. See, they're, they're too familiar with him, just like we're too familiar with Christmas. <laughs> too familiar with the decorations of Christmas. Too familiar with whenever Christmas time comes, oh, I get all stressed out because i got to go buy gifts for everybody. Too familiar with, well, when Christmas comes around, we decorate everything up, and we all get together, and we have family get-togethers. See, some of you are not having family get-togethers this holiday season. So here's my question. What does God have to do to get us to see past the familiar and to see what it, for what it really is? See, because I say this, in my opinion, we reject Christmas so many times because we get too familiar with the worldly trappings of Christmas, and we miss the whole reason we're here. Then he said, so he's gonna, now, he's about to hurt everybody's feelings in this room. He's about to, he is about to offend every single person in there, intentionally, by the way. Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. So right here he's saying, yes, I am the Messiah. And one of these days you're going to be asking me to do Messiah-type stuff right here in this place. But I tell you the, the truth. No prophet is accepted because he's rejected in his own hometown. So he's fixing to take this point and drive it home. He's fixing to take scripture now and show them where they're rejecting Christ. He says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel. So Israel, God's promised people, I mean, God's beloved people, yes, 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 all of that. And they love being God's people, but they never liked for anybody to point out their sins. Hello, anybody in the church this morning. I like being in Christ. I like the whole thing about going to heaven, but don't talk about sin. Don't point out my sins. If you're going to talk about sins, talk about somebody else's sins, and I'll agree with you, but don't get on mine. Do you, you, listen, do you know how many times I've got people in church, church members, mad at me when I preach about overeating? 
I learned early on. I mean, I thought when I was, when I was a young preacher, I thought, I man, you can preach about every sin, man. I just get, get in there. And, I get, and that was good until I started preaching about gossiping and overeating. And then I saw people in the church get mad at me. I man, you can preach about all that. Listen, preach against all that other sin, but you leave those two things alone. Do you know why? Because we justify those two things. We think it's, we, we, we think it's okay, but right here, man, he's going to get them. He says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, to a Gentile, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. This is, I mean, Zarephath, that was Jezebel's hometown. So right here when he says this, they're all stirring on the inside like, oh, how dare he bring up that, that story in that text. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Oh, they are really, look at this. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue went from loving him to hating him. Went to being like, man, this is the best preacher ever to. What? He is the devil. <laughs> they were furious with him. Jumping up, they mobbed him, and they forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built, and they intended to follow him off the cliff, to throw him, cast him off, violently cast him off the cliff. They intended to take Jesus. Let me ask you something. Do you think this was God motivating them to do this? Do you think God was stirring in their heart to take his son and throw him off the cliff? But he passed right through the crowd and went, on his way because no one could stop him from going on his way because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and God had designed from the very beginning that he was going down a cross not being thrown off a cliff by a bunch of angry demonized town people in Nazareth on that day see because here's what you have to understand Jesus said no one takes my life from me I freely lay it down you do realize that they didn't kill Jesus. We say, he, we say that, but only because he allowed them to. You, you do realize that whenever, whenever the soldiers, when they were beating him with their fists and they were beating that, that, thorn, that, that crown of thorns into his forehead, that all he had to do was just crinkle his brow and he could have destroyed them all right there. Man, they would have disintegrated around the spot if he so chose to. You do realize that, right? This is what you have to understand. That for you that are in Christ Jesus, that are longing to follow after Jesus, become more and more like Jesus with all of your heart, to live, to pray, spiritual warfare, prayers, to understand your position in Christ. Look at this. I, I claim this. The Lord is for me. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? Listen, if I'm right in the middle of God's will, right in the middle where God wants me to be, then no man can touch me. I have no reason to fear anyone or anything. I'm encouraged by that today. John 1.11 says, He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. So I'll ask you again, dear friend, is there rejection still? Is it still hurting you today? Neuroscientists have studied 
the effects that rejection have on us. And they, they took brains and brain scans of people who, had, who were experiencing physical pain and they were experiencing rejection and they put them all up on a board and brought the neuroscientists in and said, okay, now look at these and tell us which one of these brain scans are the ones that are experiencing physical pain and which, one, which ones are, are experiencing the pain of rejection. And there was no difference between any of them. They said that even people that are experiencing the, the, the ramifications of rejection, that even Tylenol made it easier for them to handle. Because it's so near to physical pain. It's, you, we said, man, that broke my heart. Oh, it was like a gut shot. What are we saying? We're saying that we feel something physical there. So, I mean, even his own rejected him. Look at this, his brothers, his own blood brothers, once born in the same family after his little brothers. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Even his own flesh and blood brothers didn't believe in him. Look at this. Isaiah 53, 2 through 6 says this. My servant, speaking of Jesus, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot like a root and dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So it's saying he's very ordinary looking. When they looked at him, he looked like everybody else. When the people of Nazareth, when they looked at Jesus, he looked like all the other young men. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. So you say, man, you've been through some deep grief this, this past year. Then, then listen, take heart. Jesus knows. He's been through the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Look at this. Yet it was our weakness he carried. I think about the cross. It was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced. Look at this language. This is written, this is written several hundred years before the first crucifixion ever took place. He was pierced by those nails for our rebellion. He was crushed, I would say, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he, and he sweat as if it was great drops of blood. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten. Man, when those soldiers were beating that crown of thorns into his forehead, he was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped by the cat of nine tails, whipped almost completely to death so we could be physically, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually healed. All of us, all of us, every single last one of us, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Oh, thank God he's so long-suffering. Here Jesus is on the cross, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you eg kataleteo? That means to separate connection with someone, to abandon. Why have you 
broken connection. Father, the eternal connection between the Father and the Son when Jesus was on that cross, those six hours on the cross when he was dying for our sins, there was a break between the eternal connection between the Father and the Son right there. And he says, why have you broken this connection with me? He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was forsaken so we could be justified. You see, in the 16th century, there was a missionary who went to China, and he wanted to, he couldn't speak the Chinese language, so he wanted to get pictures to show them the gospel story. So he, he starts off showing them the Virgin Mary and the birth of Christ, and they were loving it. He starts showing them pictures of the story of Christ doing the miracles, walking on water, and they're loving it. And then when he gets to the crucifixion, they are appalled, and they hate it, and they won't accept it. So they took everything he had and they laid it aside and they took the picture of the Virgin Mary and they wanted to worship the Virgin Mary because that was what was so beautiful to them. They missed the whole point. See, I mean, we are, we are drawn to I mean, Christmas time. I mean, we're drawn to this beautiful, wonderful story, and it is. But we have to keep in mind, why did he come? Well, why, why was he born of a virgin? Why, why was he put in that manger? Why was he wrapped in those strips of cloth? Because he was the lamb sacrificed from the foundation of the world, is what John the Baptist said. So that we could be forgiven of all of our, so that God's long-suffering love towards us can come to us here today, 2,000 years later. Think about this for just a moment, okay? Here we are 2,000 years later. The other side of the world, different country, different culture, everything different about us. Jesus never wrote a single book, never traveled more than 200 square miles out of his territory, never had a child, never went to a higher level of education, and yet he is the most famous person who ever lived on the face of the earth. Our calendar is divided because of his life. From B.C., before Christ, and A.D., the year of the Lord, why is that? Why, why is it this life that we're talking about here, why is it that it's so amazing? Why is, he so, why is he so well known? Well, because he was and he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's the beginning and he's the end. Without him, there is no existence. So please, during Christmas time, don't lose sight of that. Don't get too enamored with Mary. Don't get too enamored with the beautiful silhouette of the pictures of the sheep out there and the angels singing to them. Remember the whole purpose of this was to draw them to the manger because that manger is going to draw him to an empty tomb. And it's all of a sudden, the, without the empty tomb, we are hopeless. That's the resurrection. Even the death and the burial, it means nothing without the resurrection. See, he raised himself back up. He's the only one who ever died and said, I'm going to raise myself back up to life. He said it before it happened, and then he did it. No one else has ever been able to do that. Why? Because he's God. But some of the branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off, and you Gentiles, listen, take, if you're a Gentile today, <laughs> be encouraged. Look at this. You Gentiles who are branches from a wild olive tree, You've been grafted in. That means you've been brought in, made the same now. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised to Abraham. Because all, all, all the blessings and all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. You know that, right? 
That if you're in Christ Jesus, all the promises made to Israel, they're yes to you because you've been grafted in. Sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree, he was handed over to die because of our sins. He was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. <laughs> Listen, we don't realize how important that is, by the way. That is the most important thing we can do is have peace with God. I mean, listen, because when you're at peace with God, then you're at peace with yourself, and you're at peace with every, all the crazy people around you, even you're at peace with them. But if you're not at peace with God, then you're not at peace with yourself, and you're not at peace with anybody, anywhere. Hey, let me tell you something. Those of you who are going to go out and get in the middle of all the crazy traffic, the people who get mad at you and honk at you and tell you you're number one, you have to understand something. They're not really mad at you. They're mad at themselves. It's not about you. Listen, I will tell you that as far as rejection is concerned as well. So many times, 99% of the time, it's not even about you. It's more about them. Because when somebody truly is at peace with God, then you know what? They're going to be able to forgive you, to live at peace with you. Even, and listen, some of you can't forgive yourself. And that goes for you as well. You've got to be willing to forgive yourself. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. You don't earn it. You don't earn your way into salvation. You don't earn yourself into being blessed. You don't earn yourself into God's favor. It's given to you because of what Christ has done. That's the good news. That's the gospel right there. When you now stand, we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. So five ways to shake off the pain of rejection this morning as we wrap up this message. Number one, recognize your position in Christ. Ephesians 2.6, you've been seated with him in the heavenlies. Number two, take every thought captive. Man, I, first, 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive through the obedience of Christ. This prayer, I probably pray this thing multiple times every single day. I mean, to be, listen, here's one of the most valuable things that I could give to you this Christmas. To be aware of whenever your thoughts go in the wrong direction and to stop right there in that moment and say, God, listen, all these thoughts, they've got to become obedient. They're captive to the obedience of Christ. Y'all got to fall in line with God's word. And that will change your life. See, because, see for some of you, the people you love the most are driving you crazy. And I will tell you this, those people that you love the most that are driving you crazy, the reason they're driving you crazy isn't because they're crazy, and it isn't because you're crazy. It's because you're thinking wrong. If you can think right, within reason, I understand there's abusive situations and whatnot, but within reason, reasonable relationships, if you can think right, that is the key right there to your peace with God and your peace with other people. And focus on the eternal. Whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is good, God help me today to focus on that. Number four, pray scripture out loud. Some of y'all, you don't ever pray out loud. And I'm telling you right now, when you're missing the most important, valuable thing that you could be doing, because whenever you pray out loud, what you do is you speak that into the junk that's coming against you. You are in spiritual warfare. Listen, if you're praying the silent prayers, most of the time they don't even know what's going on. But man, when you start speaking that out loud, man, that stuff that's around you that's coming from the enemy that's still kill and destroy, they're going to have to get out of there. And by the way, playing praise music will do the same thing as well. 
I mean, kick that stuff on. Turn that on. I mean, listen, if you're feeling bad and uneasy in your mind, all this kind of stuff, if you're praying and you feel like it's not getting anywhere, then I would encourage you, turn on praise and worship music that glorifies Jesus. And they don't want to hang around for that. And pray for the ability to forgive and move forward because Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, said, how many times would we forgive somebody? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, not seven times. Seven times, 70 times. That means just forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Man, I got to ask God to help me, give me the ability to forgive. Because in my flesh, I can't do it. Can we come back to one last thing here this morning? This is what it's all about. It's about those cloths right there. Those strips of linen that were wrapped around the body of Christ and then he was buried and the ladies came back three days later with the spices to come in there and to finish off the job. And when they come in, and when the angel meets them there and says, hey, why are you looking for, the living, looking for the dead, looking for the living among the dead? Man, he is risen. He's alive. Hey, listen, I'll tell you something. As great as Christmas is, you do realize our number one holiday is Resurrection Sunday, right? Yeah. And that is it. Because, listen, without Resurrection Sunday, Christmas means nothing. So, I mean, when we talk about Christmas right now, as we go in these next few days, and you, some of you, you are going to go into a flurry of busy. You're, right now, some of you, if you've been sitting in here listening to me, you've been worried and stressed out about the stuff you've got to do today. Bless your heart. So as we go into this busyness and everything, why don't you just stop for a minute? Why don't you take a deep breath? And why don't you remember what this is all about? Listen, God put you here for a reason. You do know that? Even right here in this moment, as we look at this text, God puts you here for a reason. And here, I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to miss the moment. I don't want to ever miss what God's doing in the moment. And I would say that for most of us, most of our lives, we miss it because we're too focused on other things, because we're too distracted, I should say, by other things. How about you stand up for a moment? Let's pray. So you guys back there on the computer, let's just leave this up on the screen. So Herod, whenever he found out about the wise men coming, he brought them in and he asked them, so where's the king of the Jews to be born? And they immediately said, Bethlehem. Now here's the problem. Those religious leaders, they knew where Jesus was going to be born. They knew that Herod was on to something. They probably knew about the wise men coming in. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't go investigate it for themselves. For them, the Messiah was just something to be studied. Something to know more about. It wasn't anything to be experienced. And I would say that in world religion, throughout all time, it hasn't changed. As far as religion is concerned, Jesus is just something to study and something to know. But you see, where it moves from religion into life transformation is whenever Jesus is not just something or someone to be learned about, but he's someone to be experienced. When you experience Jesus, 
There's no way you can stay the same. He will transform you. So I'm asking myself this morning, how many times have I inadvertently rejected Christmas, Christ at the center? How many times just by getting too busy and distracted by all the junk did I end up rejecting Christ right out of my Christmas experience? God reaching out, twisting and turning as hard as he can towards me, and I'm just kicked back all nonchalant, like, hmm, okay, glad you're there, but I'm not reaching back. Too busy. Got too many good things in my life distracting me. (laughs) Oh, didn't you see this morning how long-suffering God is? That he would allow us to hang on to these good things because he wants to give you good things that are distracting us away from him. Wouldn't it be better today for us to see through all the good to the best? So right now in your heart, so would you pray? Holy Spirit, just reveal to me where I stand with you right here and right now in this Christmas season. Reveal if I'm distracted. Would you pray that right now? Is my focus on the wrong thing right now, Lord? Now, I don't don't know if this is the right way to pray. I mean, I know it sounds strange coming from a preacher, but I pray this. I don't have any scriptural to back this up, but I pray. I say, God, please help me to focus on the right thing without pain. God, turn my heart towards you without using pain. And here's what I hear in my heart of hearts every time I pray that. Then you need to turn your love towards me your affection towards me. See, because it's whenever my heart and my affections are turned to something else that that thing becomes an idol and becomes more important than God. And sometimes God has to strip away the things of this world to tune my heart back into him. Wouldn't it be good to be able to stay tuned in even in the good times? Even in the seasons that aren't filled with pain and heartache and sorrow? So I want you to just vision for just a moment them wrapping that baby I mean, if it was in one of those towers and there was a, they looked around and there's those strips from the priest's garment and they're like, hey, let's use these. Just, just picture that. Don't use my sanctified imagination. God won't mind. It's okay, I promise. And see them wrapping that, taking those strips, not even knowing where they came from or what they were for. See, Mary and Joseph are just trying to survive. They don't know what God's doing. Then they're suffering pain and rejection at every turn. 
But God's putting them right where they need to be. See them wrapping that baby in that cloth. Oh, there's nowhere else to put him. Let's just put him in this manger here. (laughs) And they're not even knowing why they're doing what they're doing. But the hand of God is right there in the middle of everything they do. So could it be that right in the middle of your pain, right in the middle of your heartache, right in the middle of your questions of why, that God is putting you right where you need to be, leading you to do what doesn't make sense now, but is for best for your eternal life and everybody else. So God, help me not to make rejection too much about me. So I'm crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Can you pray that right now? Some of you, you haven't been rejected as bad as you think you have. Some of you, you've allowed the enemy to work all this stuff up in your mind, and you're not even really been rejected. God, help me to see the truth. Help me see past my emotions and my feelings to the truth. God, grant me the ability to forgive where I can't forgive, to forgive myself, and to forgive You fill in the blank. God, I want to be at peace with you because then I know I'll be at peace with everybody else. Help me take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I hope you're not just listening to me pray right now. Now, That person that's driving you crazy, would you put their name in this blank? Help me to think rightly about, put that name in right there. Help me to see them as created in your image, O oh God, deeply loved by you. All right, you may be seated. So I want to close in prayer. I'll close in prayer, yes. All right, everybody, if you would like to continue some of that um, focus and attention as we draw closer to Christmas Day, um, I am so pleased that we'll be having a Christmas Eve service here in this building at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. So any family that you have, please feel free to invite them. We won't keep you all night, so you can go home and do whatever you've got planned with your family. Um, But that's a great opportunity, again, to just continue to draw closer with your family and any of your friends that want to join in. And then um, also as a gift to you guys, we have chronological Bibles at the front of the church. Some of you have asked about them while you've come in. Yes, those are for you. Even if you're not a member, yes. <laughs> if you would like a chronological Bible, you guys, please, we want you to have those. It's just another way for you to look at the Bible with fresh eyes and maybe a different perspective if you've already run, read through your Bible um, traditionally before. And so um, you don't have to wait till January 1st. If you wanna pick one of those up and start tomorrow, 
you know, you'll probably get busy spring break, so you'll get ahead, okay? So go ahead and grab one of those Bibles, you guys. If you don't already have one or if you have somebody who you know needs one, please go ahead and give it to them. Um, and just as always, you guys, be watching our communications. Things are changing. We are making decisions, um, sometimes day by day. But we are so pleased that you were here this morning. So if you guys will go ahead and stand, David is going to close us in prayer. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so I want to pray over you and your family and your Christmas experience. So God, we just, we bring ourselves right now under the authority of Christ. And God, as we come under the authority of Christ, Lord, we just pray. I pray over every person here, God. I pray that your blessings, that your favor will fill every heart, every marriage, every family, every get-together, oh God. Lord, we pray that you would bind away all foul and unclean spirits of all viruses away from all families and their get-togethers, and that you would fill every family get-together with love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, oh Lord. God, I pray over the ones here this morning that are anxious about getting together with some of their family, because of rifts in the family. God, I pray that you bring peace over their heart right now in these next few days. God, just remind them that you are for them, that you're on their side. So God, I just pray over each one of us as we go into this week that you keep right at the forefront of our minds what that manger and those strips of cloth, swaddling baby Jesus, what it truly represented Every time we see a manger, every time we hear a song about the manger, every time we hear a song about swaddling cloth or anything like that, that we remember what it signified, what it symbolized. And God, we thank you that Jesus came to die for our sins, to pay the price we could never pay so that we could be in your presence, so that we could be found in him, so that we could be forgiven. And God, help us to extend that same forgiveness to everyone else that you've extended to us. That same mercy and that same grace you've given us, empower us to give that to everybody else around us. So God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree with that, shout out amen.